Hello and welcome to the Tealies Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. Unfortunately, my co-host Rich Firm is unable to join us today, but I'm thrilled to be joined by one of the nation's foremost experts on China, my good friend, Dr. Elizabeth Economy. Liz is currently serving as the CV Star Senior Fellow and the Director for Asia Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. She is also a visiting fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and serves on the board of managers at Swarthmore College, her alma mater, and the board of trustees of the Asia Foundation. Liz, welcome to Tea Leaves. I'm thrilled to have you join me today. Thanks so much, Kurt. It's great to be here. So, Liz, you, you've had a very interesting career, um, and you've done a lot of interesting things over the course of your experience. I'd be I'd be interested if you could give us a sense about your early education uh, and some of your early experiences uh, uh, out of college. So, my early education, if we're just talking about college, really focused on uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, I studied Russian uh, when I was at Swarthmore, and uh, I lived in the Soviet Union just for like me. a semester. Yeah. I know, just like <laughs> you, Kurt. Uh, I lived in the Soviet Union for a semester, so Leningrad, when it was still Leningrad, not St. Petersburg. Uh, and uh, and then I went off and, and got my master's at Stanford, still focused on the Soviet Union. Uh, they had a terrific group of faculty there, including Condi Rice, uh, who was my master's advisor, in fact, mm -hmm. uh, but also Alexander Dahlin and Jan Triska, who were really some of the foremost people working on Eastern Europe and, and the Soviet Union. Uh, and then I went off to the CIA, uh, where I worked for a couple of years, where I was the Gorbachev analyst, actually. And I started just when he started, uh, when he became general secretary, uh, I started working uh, just a few months after that. So it was a fascinating time to be engaged uh, in that particular area. I've wondered about it for myself, but I wonder if you've reflected on it as well, which is how does this early experience covering a, you know, uh, a fellow uh, communist state, how does that influence how you think about China? Well, I think, you know, if there's one thing that studying Gorbachev taught me, um, it was really to expect the unexpected, right? And the importance also of just really looking at in detail at what leaders are saying uh, and what they're doing. Uh, you know, most of the information you have when you're at the agency is, you know, just <laughs> newspaper articles, speeches, uh, you know, there's not a lot of secret intelligence that, that comes uh, to you. Uh, and so you're really looking very hard to try to understand, you know, is this person saying or doing anything differently? And I have to say pretty early on, it seemed to me that he was. Uh, and so some of the earlier things that I wrote actually said, I think this guy is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had one very interesting experience where I, I actually wrote a piece about him uh, that said, you know, seems like he might have some reform-oriented ideas. It went all the way up to the top because he was so important. And what, what year was this? Uh, was this was that? 1985, toward mm -hmm. the end. Uh, or it might have been beginning of 1986, and came back down from the top, and they said, we disagree with your analysis. And I said, well, you can disagree with it, but I'm standing by it, and um, if you're going to make me change it, I'm going to quit. Uh, and my boss, you know, was a lowly branch manager, and I was a really lowly analyst, said, I'll stand by you too. 
Uh, and over time, I think, you know, I was proved right uh, and it stuck and they accepted it. But I just, you know, I think focusing on what really looking in detail at what people are saying and doing gives you some important insights that others may miss. That's interesting. I remember that period. Uh, one of our great Sovietologists was the head of the CIA, Bob Gates, and he was the last uh, non-believer, didn't believe in perestroika, grass, glasnost, thought that this was all part of a ruse. It's interesting that, you know, we, we forget this now uh, with uh, his you know, Sterling service as Secretary of State, but he missed one of the big strategic developments on the global stage. So how'd you make the transition from studying the former Soviet Union to China? Uh, so unlike many people um, who are the sort of China scholars, um, leading thinkers uh, today in the United States, I didn't begin with a uh, love of Chinese culture or politics or history. Uh, I came to it really because when I got to the University of Michigan and started my PhD program there, uh, the people who were the professors of the Soviet Union uh, said, you already know enough about the Soviet Union, you should do something else. And uh, so the sort of China scholars, one of whom I knew well, because he'd been a previous professor of mine, said, yeah, why don't you do China? You can do comparative communism. So actually, I started to study China really because I was told uh, to do it uh, by some of the professors at University of Michigan. So I started to study Chinese and at that point in time, and, and also, you know, my work became comparative in nature, and I did my dissertation work in both Moscow and Beijing. Uh, and then, frankly, when I finished my PhD, it was 1994. Wow. There was no more Soviet Union. It was now Russia. And there were no Russia jobs. And so, but there were a couple China jobs and uh, I got one at the University of Washington. So it was a, a, a combination of, of, well, it was really just serendipity in many respects uh, that I ended up uh, working on China instead of Russia. And had there been a Russia job at that point in time, I probably would have uh, targeted that instead. Hmm. So you said something earlier in that answer that I want to draw you back to. You said, I, 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 unlike a lot of people, I, I, did, I didn't... Uh, begin the study of China because of a love of China, right? And so I think one of the things that we often hear uh, if we follow Asia or China, um, people ask questions, well, look, what, what, what influences your thinking about um, this set of problems or challenges is because you have a secret affinity for China. So, so I, I noticed a slight change in your voice when you discuss this. So expand upon that, if you would. Uh, well, I, I do think, you know, frankly, when you're a comparativist, whatever country you decide to study, you fall in love with it a little bit. Um, and uh, again, I didn't start with China. I started with the Soviet Union. And um, and I always had a little more affinity for the language, for the culture uh, than I did for China. And so to some extent, perhaps not being uh in love with China when I started to study, it maybe made me a little bit more clear-eyed about the country. I think having a comparative perspective also helped because uh, I was always bouncing things back and forth, trying to understand how is this different, how is this similar. Um, so it just it, it brought me into the China field in a very different way than than most of my contemporaries came into it. Liz, you've written about a lot of interesting things. I first got to really know about you with your work on on the Chinese environment and uh, what uh, some of the challenges uh, that were faced. And what I liked about your book is that you wrote about it bureaucratically, about how institutions of local and state government um, created problems, even 
if larger uh, procedures had been put in place that were ostensibly designed to prevent certain kinds of pollutions. But I want to talk to you about your most recent book, The Third Revolution, Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State. So um, Xi Jinping obviously represents for all of us who think about Asia and China, um, really the central question. Uh, what does he represent? Um, what are his aspirations and goals? I'd, I'd be interested if you could tell us how hard is it to write a book about him? Um, there is some source material available, but there aren't a lot of people who've spent an enormous amount of time with him who um, reflect on that experience. I, I spent a little time with him when he traveled around the country. I found him to be one of the most closed people I'd ever interacted with. But what, which, how did you go about writing this book? So um, I think actually what made it not as difficult as you might uh, assume is that uh, he gives a lot of speeches. Uh, the speeches are made public uh, and he's very active. And so you can read a lot of what he says and you can listen to what he says and you can watch what he does. And once you start doing that, you realize that in many respects, Xi Jinping is, is very much a man of his word. Hmm. You know, when you, for example, you look back uh, through his rise throughout the party ranks, right, throughout the Communist Party ranks, and you find that, you know, what he talked about most of all was corruption, right, and his belief that no official uh, should use his uh, political position for personal economic gain. And that is something that right off the bat, right, he steps on the stage and he says, uh, you know, corruption could mean the death of the Chinese Communist Party, the death of the Chinese state, and launches, you know, the most ambitious, the most robust anti-corruption campaign in the history of the country, right, with more people arrested every year than the year before. So one of the things, again, if you're paying attention to what he says and you see what he does, you, you understand what actually matters to him. Uh, people thought he would be an economic reformer. Right? There was no evidence that Xi Jinping was an economic reformer. Again, as he rose through the party ranks, other officials undertook economic reforms, did interesting political reforms. Uh, Xi Jinping never did any of that. So I had a pretty good sense from the time that he started that this was not somebody for whom economic reform, as we think of economic reform and opening up, this was not central to who he was as a political figure, as a political leader. And indeed, over the past six years, I think that is what has materialized Right, because what we've seen instead is a really a reassertion of the Chinese Communist Party and state into the Chinese economy. So, you know, I didn't have the the privilege or the benefit of meeting him or spending a lot of time with him. The closest I got was uh, a lunch at the State Department. Yeah. Um, you know, where I, I sat among 150 other people and heard him speak. Uh, but I do think you can get a pretty good idea of who he is uh, again by reading what he he says and writes and and tracking him throughout the course of his career, and then also speaking to Chinese, you mm -hmm. know, people who do know him and who've interacted with him. Uh, that was my third source uh, of information for the book. So anecdotally, tell us a little bit about him, what you think you've learned. What is he like as a person? What's his decision-making style like? How is he regarded generally by the Chinese people? Well, so that's a, a big set of questions. Um, I think there are many different things um, that I've, I've learned about him over the course of my research. You know, one, for example, clearly he's extremely ambitious. 
one of the things that he's ambitious for is that China reclaim a position of centrality on the global stage. That's evident not only from his big Chinese dream and his statements about the rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, but you know was affirmed for me by uh, Chinese with whom I spoke who said, if you want to get a policy through Xi Jinping, uh, you sell it to him uh, in the in the sense that it's going to vault China on the global stage. What he really cares about, things like the Belt and Road Initiative, right, or the AIIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, or even having China uh, join the strategic drawing rights. That was a big deal. Even though, technically speaking, it doesn't give China very much, that was a big deal for him. So, you know, that's one thing that I learned about him, that sort of sense of, of himself and of the country as leading on the global stage is important. Uh, I've also heard he has a fierce temper, right? He doesn't like to be embarrassed. Uh, so when the stock market crashed back uh, in 2015 in China, uh, there were a lot of negative reports uh, in the media about Xi Jinping globally, about, about what was going on on the economic front. And apparently he was enraged Right, so that's a, another thing that I, I learned about him as a as a person. I think one of the the other things that I've taken away uh, is it's important to remember that as much as he has amassed an enormous amount of institutional power into his own hands, right, sits on top of all of the most important committees and commissions that oversee uh, large parts of of Chinese policy, both domestic and foreign. You know, he eliminated the two term limit for the presidency. All of these things that institutional power doesn't necessarily mean that he has an enormous amount of political legitimacy among all the Chinese people. Interesting. Uh, and I think, in fact, uh, there are large pockets of the Chinese populace that are extremely unhappy uh, with the direction that Xi Jinping is moving the country. And I think that's one of those things that it, it's important to, for us to remember, and we often don't because of the lack of transparency in the Chinese political system. But you can see it bubbling up in many different ways. Uh, you know, labor protests have doubled uh, under Xi Jinping between 2015 and 2016. You know, uh, capital is moving out. More people are sending their children out to study. Uh, you know, a friend of mine once said, never seen uh, a country uh, that is so strong where so many people want to leave, right? That's so strong and powerful, but so many people want to leave the country. It's an important way to remember uh, that not everything, not everybody is supportive of Xi Jinping. Just to add to that excellent overview, I, I've heard from interlocutors, and I could sense it a little bit when I spent some time with them. I think unusually for a very senior Asian official, he seemed impatient to me, um, quick to make decisions, um, you know, quick to to want to act. And I think some of his team were aware of that and and wary of it. Um, so at the at the at the beginning of your discussion around him, you talked about how. This idea of, of China assuming center place, or you know, kind of the central global role. What does that mean for how President Xi views the United States, in your uh, estimation? So I think um, Xi Jinping views the United States in a couple of different ways, but but primarily as in his way. <laughs> uh, I think in his way in the Asia Pacific. Right, really, as the country that you mean, almost like an obstacle. As an obstacle, yeah. exactly. Um, you know, in his way, in the sense that uh, the United States, over time, is really the only country that may stand in the way of, you know, his reunification uh, narrative. Right. So one of the things that Xi Jinping has put out there is that he wants the reunification of of uh, China, which includes South China Sea, uh, Hong Kong, and Taiwan by 2049. Right? He's put that out as a soft target date. I think he sees the United States as the only country that uh, 
potentially will keep him from realizing uh, realize, China realizing that objective. Uh, I think as a dominant power in the Asia Pacific, I think Xi Jinping, you know, views that as as China's natural right. Uh, and I think, again, the United States stands in that way. I think when you look at China's efforts to uh, sort of shape the narrative on the global stage, right, to have norms and institutions reflect Chinese values and priorities, whether you're talking about human rights or internet governance or development principles, I think he also sees the United States as the largest obstacle uh, to that. Um, that's not to say that he's not open to cooperating with the United States, as we saw, you know, when you were in office, right, major accomplishment was uh, the cooperation on climate change uh, between President Obama and President Xi, enormously important uh, to moving the whole world forward uh, on that issue. Uh, so I think, you know, he's not opposed to cooperating, but I think he's a man on a mission. Uh, and uh, the United States, in, in a number of important respects, uh, is an obstacle to his achieving some of his most important objectives. Mm -hmm. Give us a sense, Elizabeth. So most of our interactions, and yours in particular, at your your role at the council, you meet with a lot of Chinese intelligentsia, uh, researchers, scholars. How do you think they're responding to uh, uh, President Xi and the new um, climate in China? So I think as wide a sort of variation um, as you would find in intellectual and political perspectives in the United States, you also find in China. There is no one dominant view uh, in, in China or among Chinese uh, scholars. Uh, you will find some, I think, that are enormously proud of what Xi Jinping is doing, of the sort of assertiveness uh, that he brings to China's role on the global stage, you know, what's going on in the South China Sea. Xi Jinping standing up in Davos, you know, the first Chinese president to do that and proclaiming China leader and defender of globalization. Uh, so I think I definitely uh, have uh, Chinese scholars who are eager uh, to support and even to trumpet uh, that type of um, approach. Uh, on the other hand, I would say virtually all of my friends uh, whom I would characterize as sort of liberal intellectuals are despondent. <laughs> um, and they are concerned by the constraints on the internet uh, that they face, uh, by concerns about limitations on what they can write and what they can say. Uh, you know, many senior scholars in China also hold positions, especially university administrators, hold positions in the Chinese government. So whether in the National People's Congress or the Chinese Politi uh, Political People's Political Consultative Conference. Uh, and so many of them were very unhappy when Xi Jinping, uh, you know, amended the constitution to eliminate the two-term limit on presidency, because in those positions too, they, they viewed themselves as able to articulate uh, some, you know, interesting reform-oriented ideas, and now they feel as though those opportunities are lost, mm. right? Because now Xi Jinping is sitting with all three of the most important positions, right? General Secretary of the Communist Party, Chairman of the Central Military Commission, and President of the country, potentially for life, right? So that looking to 2022, when you would have had the natural succession come into play, you know, they don't see that happening anymore. So I think that's another group that's that's pretty unhappy. And then I, I guess entrepreneurs, you know, is another group that I've had a fair amount of, of, of engagement with. And here too, I think they see a lot of opportunity. China's pouring money uh, into, uh, you know, innovation, uh, into research and development. Uh, but by the same token, many of the entrepreneurs who have their own companies are unhappy uh, because Xi Jinping is, you know, 
uh, increasing the role of the Communist Party uh, in their decision making. Right. So now these Communist Party cells are being put in these companies in these private companies and being told, well, here's where you should invest or here's what you should invest in. Or, you know, we'll take a two percent uh, stake in your company and take a couple of board seats while we're at it. Uh, so this is not what these entrepreneurs had in mind uh, when they started their own companies and, you know, uh, you know, what they thought was really a private enterprise. So I think there are many um members of sort of the elite within China, uh, again, that are somewhat unhappy with the direction in which she is moving the country. So recently, our mutual friend Graham Allison has published a book about the Thucydides trap. How do how do Chinese friends think about that? How do they um, how do they uh, consider uh, the competition currently as it exists between the United States and China? So I think the view sort of a, a dominant view. And again, I would just stress that there are many different perspectives on this, but I think, you know, a dominant view, if you were to look back to 2008 uh, and the sort of the, in the midst of the global financial crisis was that, you know, most Chinese scholars would say, oh, we always knew that China would eventually surpass the United States. Uh, it's just happening much faster than we thought. Right? Because the Chinese economy seemed re reasonably robust at that time. They had just hosted the Olympics to great acclaim. They were riding high. Uh, and then, you know, President Obama came in. You had the pivot or the rebalance. You know, we were pushing forward on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, shifting, you know, our naval and air force assets to the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, a lot of countries in the region were concerned about China's rise. All of a sudden, and our economy rebounded much more quickly than the Chinese anticipated. So then you sort of had them take a little bit of a step back uh, and start to say, ah, a lot of them were kind of like, ah, actually, we shouldn't have counted the United States out quite so quickly. I think right now, uh, you know, President Trump has, um, has caused, uh, I think, some confusion in China. I think initially, and I've been to China probably four or five times, I think, since uh, President Trump's uh, election. And, and each time I go, there's a slightly different perspective. Uh, and and I, so I think they have a little bit of whiplash um, because I think gradually they came to understand that uh, President Trump would be easy to, for them to manage, right? That he was a businessman. He just wanted to do a deal. Uh, I remember right after I was there, right after he suggested that he might launch some tariffs and the Chinese were like, ah, eh, you know what, we'll just buy $100 billion uh, more worth of goods and we'll just basically buy him off and that'll be that. And plus, he was always talking about, you know, his great affinity and, you know, uh, friendship with uh, Xi Jinping. So I think they felt uh, like, you know, they could appeal to his ego and pretty much buy him off. And that turned out not to be the case. Uh, and so uh, Xi Jinping, I mean, President Trump really uh, has surprised them in many respects. I think, you know, surprised them with the Taiwan Travel Act, right, which promotes, uh, you know, sort of high-level visits between uh, senior U.S. administration officials and Taiwan Taiwanese officials, uh, surprised them with the uh, move forward with uh, Kim Jong-un, uh, and surprised them uh, with, I think, the intensity of this tariff war that he has launched. So they're a little bit off balance right now. Um, I think the uh, Chinese economy is slowing. They're not quite, they're not feeling quite as uh, robust 
uh, perhaps as they did uh, back in 2008. Nonetheless, there are still elements of, of China, again, if you look at what's going on in the innovation sector and art research and development, where I think they feel over the long term, uh, based on what the United States is doing today, they have the advantage that they're investing for the future, whereas the United States is looking backwards. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess in terms of the Thucydides trap itself, uh, I think there are certainly some Chinese scholars who very much identify with Graham Allison's uh, approach to it, uh, and there are others who are very quick to say, this is not how we view this relationship, and it's not how we want to see this relationship develop. Um, so I, I think there's there's a mixed perspective on it. But it, just in terms of overall how they view the competition with the United States right now, uh, again, I think there are areas where they feel that they've made a lot of progress in the South China Sea, um, in innovation, uh, and areas where they feel like they're a little bit on their back foot. Do they ever worry that the United States, um, as the established power, often if you look at the history of these complex dynamic relations, it is the established power is the one that starts to feel insecure and threatened by the arriving state on the international scene. To those that are involved in thinking about sort of these hegemonic transitions, are there you know, elements of anxiety about Washington, about what we would do uh, or what we will do as China's prominence uh, grows on the international stage? It's an interesting question. You know, I haven't heard um, much talk about the potential for, for example, U.S. aggression against China in a, in a way of, of trying to contain China. Um, certainly, you hear about uh, the United States right now adopting a strategy of containment. That is one of the narratives that the Chinese government is promulgating at this moment. Do you think they believe it? Uh, I, I think they do believe it. Uh, at least some people believe it. Yeah. And there's, I mean, we've given them good reason to at this point. Uh, I think uh, the Trump administration, the rhetoric is quite hot when it comes to China, right? We're always talking about China as a competitor, as a whole of government and a whole of society threat. Uh, we've elevated China, uh, you know, to the level of, of Russia or even beyond uh, to some extent. Uh, and so I think from the Chinese perspective, when they look out at what the United States is doing, whether we're you know, pushing forward to try to compete against now the Belt and Road Initiative or in the South China Sea, weaving together potentially some you know, free and open Indo-Pacific initiative. I think they look at all of that and see it very much uh, as an effort to try to contain them. And the tariff war, I mean, part of the narrative right now that the Chinese government is pushing uh, with the Chinese people is that the tariff war is not about trade. Right. It's not about trade and investment. The Chinese government hasn't done anything wrong. This is just part of a broader effort uh, by the United States government to contain China. Hmm. So, Liz, you've written this great book. It's It's been very well received. Uh, issues associated with China are red hot. You're in very high demand. Um, what do you want to work on next? What do you want to spend the next couple of years thinking about? So I think one of the issues that... Um, I'm interested in really is trying to understand um, Xi Jinping's uh, foreign policy vision and uh, the extent to which China is trying and is capable of uh, reshaping uh, the global landscape uh, in ways that better suit its purposes and its interests. So whether you're looking at the Belt and Road Initiative or you're looking at global governance ideas or you're looking at uh, what's taking place in terms of moving from staking to realizing sovereignty claims, 
you know, are we moving? And we have simultaneously this, you know, push on the U U.S. side to decouple uh, the two economies. Uh, I'm curious as to whether we could end up with two different sort of, you know, half worlds uh, divided uh, with different systems, political and economically integrated systems that that are sort of separate halves. Uh, so that's something that I've just started thinking about, you know, in a broader sense, not just the economic element of it, but sort of the political and security elements of it as well. Fascinating. We'll want to reconnect with you and rejoin that conversation at some point as you think more deeply about it. Liz, thank you so much for joining us today. We're so lucky to have had a chance to hear your perspectives on, on China, this most interesting period. And thank you all, our subscribers, for listening. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. And we'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.